Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. The Transform Your Teaching Podcast is a service of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. We seek to inspire higher education faculty to adopt innovative teaching and learning practices. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome back to Transform Your Teaching here on the campus of Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. My name is Jared Piles, and with me is Dr. Rob McDowell. Hello, sir. Hello. We are revisiting our series on the basics of education. We called it Back to the Basics, and we're going to talk assessments. Uh, but this time, we're, just, we're revisiting this, and we're going to bring on some guests with us as well, because you know it always helps to hear from um, some experts in the field, for sure. Oh, yeah. And one of them is one of my newer friends. Yes. Hopefully, he thinks the same. I'm not sure. We'll he, find out after the podcast. We'll find out if the interview's over with. <laughs> <laughs> he currently teaches at Dort University. Uh, his undergraduate is at Dort, and his master's is also at Dort. But the reason I know him so well, and we are brothers in arms, is because he finished his ed D through Boise State University. Wow. He is proof that I can do it. Yeah, that's good. Because he finished. So his name is Dave Mulder, and he joins us now. Hello, Dr. Mulder. Hello. Thanks so much for having me, gents. This is a, a real pleasure for me. All right. We appreciate you coming on. We met uh, at AECT conference a while back and uh, immediately became friends. And he had a great session that I joined um, that talked about content delivery and talked about um, some excellent assessment strategies that he uses in his classroom as well. So we thought we'd bring him on and chat about it with him. Sounds so, good. Let's yeah. do it. So uh, give us a little background first about yourself, Dave. Where'd you come from and what brought you to higher ed and all that stuff? Yeah, so that's, that's a wonderful question. I, I, as you mentioned, I'm a Dort grad and it's interesting, right? Uh, I grew up in Southern California. Dort's located in Northwest Iowa. So I'm this city kid from Los Angeles who ended up in the midst of the cornfields for my college experience. And uh, when I graduated, I was looking to get out of here. And so I actually <laughs> moved back to Southern California. I was a middle school math and high school computer science teacher for the first three years of my teaching career. Um, I had married a girl from the Midwest, and she was terribly homesick. So after three years, we started looking for teaching jobs back in the Midwest. And I ended up taking a job at the Christian School here in Sioux Center, which is funny to me. I never expected to be back at Iowa. Here I was. Uh, and so we've lived in Sioux Center for over 20 years now. Uh, I was a middle school math, science, Bible, computer science teacher at the Christian School. Um, my last role there was as technology director or in school. And uh, when there was an opening here at Dort, I started adjuncting along the way and took on a full-time role. I've been here at Dort for 12 years now. I went fast. Wow, 12 years. And what department or school do you teach in? Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm, I serve as the department chair in our education department, and I teach a variety of things there. Um, some educational foundations courses, some more pedagogically oriented courses. Uh, my background is a STEM teacher. I teach a lot of our STEM education courses. And then at our master's program, I basically, I am the tech track for our master's program. I teach uh, on a rotating basis, I think four of the courses for that program. Oh, that's awesome. I'm just curious, what is the Dort mascot? Oh, we are the defenders, of course. The defenders of Dort. Here we go. Dort, the Dort yeah. defenders. defenders. Like you got it. it. Is the I mascot like have a full suit of armor? It's gotta be a shield. Yes. Absolutely yeah. that. Does it have uh, a sword? Suit of, suit of armor and a big shield out in front. Yeah. We are, so we are at some the point they went away from the Crusaders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now they're the defenders. I guess. Yeah. There's a little more positive conversation. But... <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other questions that we do ask is, 
and uh, I think it's a good one to ask for you as well, is what is your philosophy of education, if you can give it to us in an elevator pitch? Elevator pitch, yeah. So I would describe my philosophy of education as I am striving to teach Christianly. And what I mean by that is I'm trying to lead with the fact that I believe Jesus is sovereign over all things. And that uh, informs every part of my practice. And yeah, do I live that out perfectly? Well, certainly not. But that is what I'm aiming for. Yeah, and a big part of that then is trying to shrink the gap between um, what I say I believe and what I'm actually doing on a day-to-day basis in my teaching practice. Try to more faithfully follow Jesus. Sounds like educational design too there, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. So we talk servant teaching a lot on our campus. Um, why don't you speak to that a bit? What do you think of that philosophy? I love the idea of servant teaching, and this is something I talk about. I teach our intro course, and a big part of our um, course for future teachers who are just discerning their calling is we need to think of this work as service. Uh, I, I often say in the intro, you know, you can think of teaching as just a job, and you will burn out in about three years. We, we've got to think of this as a longer-term, broader service to, for the good of the body of Christ. Um, yeah, and as Christ gives uh, the Spirit, members of his body, unique gifts, uh, we use those gifts for the good of the whole body serve the world. So yeah, that's a, a really important part, I think, of what we're trying to be on here at Door too. Mm. That's great. So Dr. Mulder, obviously one of the reasons why we have you on today is um, we want to talk about assessments. We've already recorded an episode that deals with assessment, and I think Jared and I were the ones who were pretty much talking, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so So that we're not in an echo chamber, I think it's helpful to have you on. Um, and to talk about assessment. So how do you approach assessment? Well, assessment, I've said before, is about the most mystical part of the whole endeavor of teaching and learning. And what I mean by that, that sounds weird to talk about mysticism. because <laughs> it's like, What are they teaching at Dort? Yeah. What is this? <laughs> right. Teaching is a craft, and we could describe technique and all of that. So I, I, I don't want to get away from that part. But what I mean by saying mystical is somehow... Somehow I have to get inside my students' heads and I have to know what they know and I have to understand what they understand. And the only way I could describe that is it's got to be somehow something mystical. I got to somehow get them to name the things that they know and understand and demonstrate the things they're able to do in some really practical and pragmatic way that it comes out of them so I can understand it. Right. So I always think about assessment in terms of alignment. Um, and what I mean by that is we've got to have really clear learning targets. If, if we don't know what we're aiming for, we're not going to hit anything. Um, so as soon as you designate those learning targets, then suddenly we can start talking about assessments. And then assessment is that, uh, well, okay, this is the target. How close to the bullseye did you get? Mm. And to be able to make that um, analogy work out. And then there's a whole bunch of things we can do to make it more likely that students will actually hit the target when it comes time for assessment. And then that's the real work of teaching, right? Helping them adjust their stance and how they pull them back on the bowstring and, and all of those things. Uh, but I like that as an analogy, uh, thinking about the archery range, because it does kind of give them a, a clear mental picture for, for us as teachers. What What is it that we're trying to do? We're setting out these targets, and then I want to measure how well did students actually hit the target that we've set. So we've, we've talked about assessments as in like a roadmap. Like if you've got a destination at the very end, um, those are the summative pieces at the very end. But the steps, the milestones along the way are your formative assessments. I think it plays well with, you know, the, the target thing you're talking about is, you know, if you're going to assess that formatively, um, you've got, okay, well, you've got to hit these certain marks. You've got to make sure you pull the, bo- the bowstring back enough. You've got to make sure you've got the, 
Your left hand is placed where I'm, I'm calling back my high school PE. Your elbow is straight. Elbow's got to be straight. That's right. Um, all this stuff. So talk a bit about the, the how you see formative and, and summative in that way. Yeah. So I'll speak to this. I'm going to lean on Rick Orbley, who is uh, an educator who I deeply respect. And uh, one of his books that I find very useful, I would recommend it to your audience, is Fear Isn't Always Equal. Um, he talks about this idea that um, what what we mean when we talk about things being fair, it's not treating everybody the same, but giving everybody what they need to succeed and flourish and thrive. Um, and anyway, so in in this book, he, he gets at a little bit of that idea, the difference of of what formative assessments can do to help us move more closely, uh, better orient ourselves to to being able to hit that target, as, as we're going to say. Um, so he would he would even go so far as to say, let's stop calling it formative assessment, summative assessment. He'd say, if it's summative assessment, let's just call that what it is. It's judgment. This is where we're actually <laughs> judging whether or not students have done what they're expected to do. That's very true. And it is. instead of, yeah, right. And instead of formative assessment, he says, let's call that feedback, right? Because feedback has to be specific and timely and actionable. And you actually have it like if, we're, if it's not actionable, then it's not really feedback. Then it's judgment. And that's okay. Like part of our role as educators is to judge the quality of our students. We have a professional obligation and responsibility to judge the quality of students' work. And we shouldn't feel bad about that. But also we shouldn't get those things confused. And yeah, for students to actually get better, they need feedback. Because feedback is where growth actually happens. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what you're not doing well yet. Mm -hmm. And how do I help you keep moving forward from where you're at currently to where we're going? And I really like that idea to, to distinguish that. So formative assessment, I always think feedback. What am I going to tell students? What's, what are they doing well right now? What do they need to keep working on to get better at? So you've kind of gone down a path here with assessment that's caused me to think, especially after having some conversations with other educators out uh, in the wild, so to speak. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges that I think not only K-12 through teachers face, but also higher ed, is the time factor. Education is the variable, and time is the constant. I'd like to flip that, obviously, for me personally, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and get to competency-based learning. But being that as it may, one of the things I think each faculty member, whether K-12 through or higher ed, faces is they run out of time. They run out of time to get the proper feedback. They run out of time to work with certain students because they're not at a certain level to be able to really, truly engage with the material that you have or that you're teaching in a particular class. You know, how do you, as an instructor, handle that? How do you stay true to having good assessment? Or, well, I mean, how do you have a practical assessment strategy, really, where you're not constantly beating yourself up because you see where you missed the mark? For sure. So I really appreciate that question, Robin. I think I joke, but I do. I think you're asking the right question because how do we right size um, our our work as teachers, right? I, I feel that so deeply, and maybe this is just me burying my soul about this, but I worry a lot about my my teaching practice. I I want to do well for my students. I want to represent myself well, but I want to do well by my students. And there's always more that could be done, right? Like so, that question of how much is enough, or or how do I manage all of the many things I have to do? Sometimes it's like I'm just trying to keep the marbles from rolling off the table. And I think that that's one piece of it where I've, I've learned this over time that I need to try to do fewer things. And that is a countercultural move because we're, we're, we find ourselves in an education culture where we're always expected to do more and, and do more and do more. So what that might look like in a course, um, and I started doing this back in the day when I was a middle school teacher, 
um, I realized at one point I can't actually assess 37 things every every semester. I can't actually assess 37 things. Uh, that That's too many. And I can't actually get enough data to see if my students have really learned the things that I want them to learn. Now, I still might teach 37 things, mm. but I'm going to try to bucket those assessments a little bit then. And so I started using a version of standards-based grading, and I was kind of a low ranger doing standards-based grading levels, but we were using a very traditional assessment system. But I would break things down. I, I realized I could probably can't teach more than a handful of things actually in the semester. So I would try to get it down to five. I can give it like five big, big ideas that I can actually assess. Um, and sometimes I can't get it down to five. Okay, maybe eight. Maybe I can get it down to eight things. But how do I loop together these all these small 37 things into some bigger chunks where I can actually have like one bigger idea and an assessment vehicle that I give students, whether that's a piece of writing or it might be a quiz or some kind of a project or a presentation, every activity that we do that's going to demonstrate their learning is going to somehow tie back to one of those big ideas if I've got just five or seven or eight of them. And then they're going to have multiple attempts to learn things throughout the semester. They're going to have multiple attempts to demonstrate where they're at right now in that formative assessment piece. And by the end of the semester, they should have a compelling story to tell of their learning. So I don't expect them to know things at the beginning of the semester because I haven't thought it to them yet. And they haven't had opportunities to practice it. But by the middle of the semester, we should have some good evidence that they're growing in their understanding of these big ideas. Well, by the end of the semester, if we've got it limited down to really just a handful, five, seven, eight things that we're going to try to, well, by then they've got lots of evidence that they've actually learned the things that I want them to actually learn. They, there's a compelling body of evidence that they know things, they understand things, they have skills, they've been able to articulate their attitudes and beliefs, how they feel about the things that they're learning. We've got this rich picture that way. Um, and yeah, that doesn't mean I don't still teach the details, the small scale things, but I'm always trying to fit those details into a bigger story that that there's um, a, a smaller number of things that I'm actually going to be looking for. So if you look at my syllabi for the college level of courses I'm teaching to undergrads or for grad students, rarely do I have more than four or five course level learning targets. Mm. And everything that I teach somehow funnels back into those four or five things. Um, and, and if you write them carefully, that, that, that I think is the hardest part of it, mm -hmm. right? So then, then you have to kind of spend some time thinking about your curriculum and it's like, okay, all of these little facts that I want to make sure that students learn, they actually cluster together and it's really part of this big idea. My friend Daryl DeBoer has put it this way before. There's 16 minute learning, which is stuff that they're learning in class that they really only need to remember for today. It's all we going to use it for today, for the next 16 minutes. Then there's 60 day learning. And that might be, you know, until they take a test on this stuff. But then there's also 60-year learning. Mm. And 60-year learning is the stuff that I really care about. Really, like deep down, the stuff I really care about, the stuff that's going to make a difference, not just for this course, not just for this semester, but for the rest of their life. Mm. Those are the things that are those big ideas. What do I really want them to know, understand, be able to do? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to believe? What do I want them to commit to? Those are the things that we should really be putting time and attention to. Because I can teach 37 things, but a lot of that stuff is 60-minute learning. I got to commit to the 60 yearly. Sounds like he's saying, say no to the good so you can say yes to the best. Hey, that's it, right? Yeah. Got to pick and choose. We can't, we can't do all things to our standard, right? So how do you choose what are the things we need to know? And then to bring it back to servant teaching, you're serving your students by equipping them, not just to get the A in your class, but to have a the skills they need to 
do well in life as well. And yeah, it's not easy work, right? Like that's the the hardest and worst part, I think, of this for me too. Like when I'm looking at the syllabus, I'm building a new course. Okay, what what am I actually going to put into this course? Oh, well, I've got this whole pile of things I'd love them to read. I've got all these ideas for different activities you can do in class. But then it's like, well, I really got to craft the whole story for this course from the beginning of it and say, these are the five things that we are going to make sure we learn. And then aligning things really carefully. So yeah, every learning activity we do in the class, every assignment that I get them to write and reflect on, everything we read, it's all going to be part of that storyline in this course that we're going to get all these pieces aligned. And so when it comes to some of the assessment at the end, yeah, now we're really focused in on just these five things. And I know that they have come away with a deep understanding of these five things. And that requires you to know, like you just said, along the formative process, you have to know that they've mastered all those small things so that you have the freedom to explore. Because, you know, if we don't have those small things in place, we can't assess the big things and have the freedom as an instructor to say, okay, I can talk about these big things on the summative. I don't have to spend 50 minutes of my final exam on the multiple choice questions of the little minutia things. You know, I can spend more time, give them a chance to really show their understanding of those big things. Let me give that practical example of this maybe. So in my intro to ed class that I teach, um, one of the learning targets we have is I will become familiar with the professional language used by professional educators. But really, that means I want them to learn vocabulary, right? We've got about 120 <laughs> vocabularies. I want to, you should know what an IEP is. You should like all, all uh-huh. the acronyms and, and the teacher jargon. Okay, well, this is a broad scale learning target. And that doesn't mean like I want them to know 120 vocabularies. So throughout the semester, they have a weekly quiz. Just about every week, they've got about 10 or 12 or 15 vocabulary that they need to learn. I give them some strategies, some ways to help practice and learn that vocabulary. And then the quizzing, they have a weekly quiz, and I expect them to take the quiz online before they come to class. There's a face-to-face class where they take the quiz online. Um, And the way I've set this up, I've made those quizzes super low stakes because... My working theory here is I just want them to practice. I want them to practice it. And so make them super low stakes. What I mean by that is they can retake the quiz as many times as they want to up until class time. Like they should get 10 out of 10 on every single quiz. And 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 the working idea here is if you know them, you're going to get them right. Mm-hmm. If you don't know them yet, you're going to practice them until you learn them. Yeah. And, and students have reported like, boy, they really get them. And so on their final, yeah, they do need to know them by the end of the semester, but I just pull a sample. I'm not going to come to all 120 terms. Like they need to know them all, but I'm just going to pull 30 of them. And by that point, they've been practicing all semester. They know them because they worked them and worked them. And the ones they didn't know yet, they keep reviewing them. They keep reviewing them. And so that kind of helps to level set a little bit. Yes, there's a summit of assessment at the end where I'm going to judge whether or not you've mastered this body because that's the learning target. You should be able to do that. But along the way, we're going to get this formative feedback. You take this online quiz, you get immediate formative feedback. Hey, I got five out of 10. Okay, I know those five. Well, let me practice the five I didn't know yet. Take the quiz again. Oh, okay, now I got eight out of 10. Okay, now I got two more. I got to keep practicing. Now I got 10 out of 10. Great, you, you nailed it, right? And it gives them that just-in-time information about what they already know and what they don't know yet. And they got to keep working towards it. Give me some examples that you've done um, for summative assessments besides the, I know you think out the box. So give, <laughs> give me give me some of your favorite or most ideas. harebrained ideas for summative assessments. So one that I really enjoy doing with student 
is I, I like having students give presentations in class, but I've come to realize like having everybody in a class of 30 students do a stand and deliver presentation, I'm not convinced that unless the learning target is to do a stand and deliver presentation, <laughs> I'm not convinced that's the best way to, to actually have them present their research. <laughs> so one that I've come to, I, I call it the education reform symposium. One of the classes that I teach, uh, we focus in on education reform initiatives over the past 20 years. Um, and just, it's a way of thinking about the recent history of education and also kind of getting the lay of the wind. But what, what are teachers talking about? Well, instead of having everyone do a stand and deliver presentation, uh, the summative assessment for that component of the course is we basically put on an education reform symposium where they sit at a table together with colleagues who've researched other topics. They are the expert in their topic at their table. They just give a 15 minute presentation at their table. And then they close with a burning question for discussion for, for their classmates. They have the opportunity to demonstrate that they have mastered this um, body of, of knowledge, that they they know the things that they need to know, uh, do able to speak with authority. Um, I do have them turn in a little something to me because I want to see, you know, show me your slide deck, show me your sources, show me your, your notes that you're using for the presentation. So they've got that part. And then as they're presenting at their tables, I'm just working the room. So I don't get to hear all of any presentation, but I get enough to know that they're speaking with credibility, with authority. Um, when they close with a burning question, it, it typically is something that their classmates now are curious about. And so they're going to have opinions about it based on their own experiences in education. It's been a really effective idea for getting students to talk together about the key concepts for the course. Um, for something way out of the box, we give yeah. you one more. But this this is kind of what we want. That, that, um, I, I know that that's pretty mild by your standards. Come on, Dave. Yeah, give me something yeah, big. yeah. On, okay. Something so big. so I gave students. Uh, this this was um, in one of my upper level STEM education courses. So mostly juniors and seniors taking this um, methods of teaching, science, technology, engineering. Uh, for part of the, their final project of the class uh, was uh, create an album. And so they didn't actually have to record the music. There was about the either a little bit too far, but like the album artwork. Uh, the track listing, they had to choose a genre, they had to make up a band, like who who is this band, right? And it was around the learning targets for the course. But in particular, this one was around um, like planning, instruction, and assessment in STEM education. So they had to like creatively generate something silly and ridiculous, the kinds of things they came up with. So, so wonderful, <laughs> right? So uh, it's an acapella vocal band and they have their, oh, I can't remember the title, right? They have like a, a really clever, cute title that they came up with for this group. But to get them to just be a little bit playful and a little bit goofy uh, with it. And and I think that's part of the, the problem I see in education. They were all so serious all the time. And and this I, there is a time and a place to be serious. Here, here this well, right? But I think if we can be a little bit more playful in our practice, there's going to be a whole lot more joy and delight. And, and even to, to model this for the future teachers that I'm serving, uh, to get them to think a little bit about the practice that way. Like, where are you going to be a little resourceful and bring in something goofy and something silly that's going to catch your students' imagination a little bit? You should make your students do an uh, 80s uh, new album commercial. You remember those? Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, have them record the... It's up the eighties, or yeah, whatever. It's got the scroll going with oh, all yeah. the different artists yeah, and yes. titles. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, I I'm going to ask you because I wrote a blog about this, and this is what you talked about in Vegas at AACT. We were at Vegas for a conference. So what it, happened it was, in Vegas is coming. It's coming out of Vegas. It's coming yeah. out of right. Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, Only tell, Christians could do that. I think everyone, every higher education instructor, needs to practice the florilegium. And I would like you to talk in depth. Well, you got about 
five minutes. Okay, hold on a second. You just dropped this massive word. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll let him to, describe it. We've got to make sure. Oh, this is this is marvelous. Okay. Florilegium. All right, all right. Florilegium. The, the idea of this is we're going to practice a technique used by medieval copyists, right? So scribes who are copying scripture or copying other books in the scriptorium, they would have their own little copy book on the side. And as you're copying the Psalms, you'd be like, oh, that's a beautiful phrase. And so you'd copy it into your own little copy book. So you end up with this weird little collection of snippets of text that these uh, medieval scribes have. So I, I came across this idea. So what if what if we would do like a, a 21st century digital twist on, on this? And, and the idea is this. I send students to read something that's going to be kind of a challenging, provocative read for them, something that's demanding. Um, and then I have a Google form set up. And so their encouragement is, as you're reading this article, this challenging chapter, this challenging article, whatever the reading is, um, grab any phrase, or maybe it's a whole sentence that just catches your eye. Something that sparkles, something that something seems weird, something beautiful um, about it. Copy and paste that right out of the, the document you're reading. Put it in this Google form. And so then we're just collecting this. Um, it's like we're collecting flowers. Uh, that's the term forologium comes from. Literally, it comes from Latin words to gather flowers, right? Um, and so we end up with this wild collection. I like Google Forms for this because it can automatically populate it into a spreadsheet that I can then share with the students. And it gives them the opportunity to go back into this weird shared collection of snippets of text now where we can do stuff with it. Like they can start to search for words or search for phrases or dump them into a word cloud generator and see what comes out of it. Or one that I really like having them do is, okay, we've got 80 snippets of text in this um, spreadsheet now randomly pick your five favorite numbers and smash those bits of text together and see what emerges from it. And it's just a very different way for them to get into a, a demanding reading and to see collectively, here's what we thought about it. And now I can make some sense of it. It's a wonderful, weird strategy, but it's so fun. And I don't know if I would use that one for a formative or excuse me, for a summative assessment, but as a formative assessment technique, it's kind of a neat way for them to have to do some meaning making and then to write reflectively, like, here's what emerged for me in response to that. And it kind of gives some evidence of where they are along the loop. I love it. I'm I'm stealing it. I'm using it. I'm building, Use it. It's great. I'm building a course right now uh, on objectives, and I'm totally stealing that and using it. Well, it sounds I like the it. forerunner to smart notes. Um, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's essentially what you need to do. As a PhD or an EDD student, that's your life. Absolutely, I feel like maybe I should have been doing that this whole time while I've been in this program. But uh, well, you small steps, small steps, small steps. That's <laughs> let part me start of, all over. That's part of the uh, the uh, what's the word? The reveal to you. Okay. In your education, I should have been doing that the whole time. Yeah, okay. essentially. Or someone would have told me that. Yep. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it was absolutely a pleasure. Really kids. appreciate it. I, I love this so much. It's uh, been great to have you. We'll tell our listeners that you have a bi-weekly newsletter called Positivity, Passion, and Purpose. It's awesome. And he also has his own podcast. Oh, well. Competing with ours. Well, maybe he should <laughs> invite us that. sometime. <laughs> called the Hallway Conversations Podcast. It's a podcast about issues in education and teaching Christianly. Dr. Malder, thanks so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So that's going to do it for us today on the Transform Your Teaching podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe and leave us a review uh, and check out our blog at uh, cedarville.edu forward slash focus blog. And we'll see you next time.